Morena. Good morning, everybody, and welcome to those of you joining us online as well. So as Chloe said, we're in a series on generosity. Newt kicked it off last week, and today's subject is generosity and time. And we've just heard the writer of Ecclesiastes musing on time, a time for everything. Ah, that somewhat soothing, yet also somewhat disturbing passage of scripture that is sometimes read at funerals, where it both comforts and unsettles us with its mention of birth and death, weeping and laughing, war and peace, and that obscure reference to throwing and retrieving stones. What on earth is that? I was thinking, is it an early version of Petonk? <laughs> Who knows? <laughs> the scholars don't know. Oh, honestly, they don't. We kind of like this passage because it feels comforting as if God has ordained everything that happens, but then phrases like a time to kill and a time to hate raise a dark question in our minds. Has God ordained these things too? Hmm. Let's begin by clearing up some confusion about this passage. The writer is not making any kind of moral comment with his, let's presume it's a he, with his list of opposites like breaking down and building up, weeping and laughing. He is simply listing what happens under heaven. In other words, he's observing the full spectrum of activity, emotion, and circumstances that constitutes our existence. The purpose of this catch-all collection is not to say that it's all good and worthy or necessarily willed by God, but simply to note what we face in this life. The passage should, in fact, unsettle us rather than soothe us not because it's advocating love and hatred or war and peace on equal terms, it's not, as I've said, but rather because it reminds us that we don't control the terms of our own existence. And we often don't get to choose what happens to us in this life. And the first statement alone should alert us to this fact, a time to be born and a time to die, the time of our birth and death, are beyond our control. And so welcome to the mystery of mortality. It's not necessarily a comfortable mystery to live within. And that's the point the writer is leading towards, which is most starkly put in verse 11, where again, we feel initially soothed, only to then feel decidedly disturbed. Have a listen. The verse begins, he, God, has made everything suitable for its time. Now these words rock us comfortably like a baby. Then comes the observation, moreover he has put a sense of past and future into their minds. Unlike other animals, humanity has a sense of eternity. Our minds naturally ponder the deeper meaning of our existence within time and perhaps beyond. But if you thought that that was a positive thing, think again, because the tail end of the verse dashes our sense of tranquility, yet they, humans, cannot find out what God has done 
from the beginning to the end. This statement is a complaint. The writer of Ecclesiastes boldly declared, perhaps brashly declared early in the book, I, the teacher, applied my mind to seek and to search out by wisdom all that is done under heaven. In our passage, that same writer admits defeat when it comes to understanding all that happens under heaven and what it all means. Theologian John Jarek notes this fact. He says, the human, the human being has aeon, eternity, in his or her heart, and his creator has made him a thinking being. And he wants to pass beyond his fragmentary knowledge and discern the fuller meaning of the whole pattern. But the creator will not let the creature be his equal. As surely as God has put aeon in the human heart, a consciousness that there is more than the immediate kairos of this or that in which the creature finds itself, he has also put a veil upon the human heart so that the finite human mind is unable to reach beyond the kairos into the aeon to see as God does. Who's feeling bewildered by Greek terms? <laughs> Jarek introduces us here to two Greek words that relate to time, aeon and kairos, and I want to introduce a third, chronos, and say something about each in this sermon on generosity and time. Do bear with me because these words actually help us understand the limits on our humanity in relation to time and the invitation that God extends to us to bless others with our time. Let's start with chronos. Chronos time is time we can measure, like seconds, minutes, and hours. I have a chronos device on my wrist, measuring time chronologically. I'm old school, some of you have it on your phone. You'll be relieved to know that I've given thought to the chronos dimensions of this Sunday sermon, or we could be here till tomorrow. Now, I want to suggest that aside from the length of a Sunday sermon, we are not always supposed to think in terms of chronos time. Now, I happen to be married to someone who would say a very resounding amen to that, because Julie offsets my obsessively ordered nature with her organic, I'll get to it when I feel like it disposition. <laughs> and so just allow me to misuse the privilege of preaching for a moment to beg my wife to pay a little more attention to chronos time. <laughs> while to, that got a reaction, while to everybody else, I suggest that we want to think more in terms of kairos time. Now, Jarek spoke of the immediate kairos of this or that season or moment in time. It's a little complex, but the word kairos can still refer to a period of time, but unlike chronos, it carries a deeper sense of the, the right or critical moment. It's about a thing in the right season which is what, of course, our writer of Ecclesiastes is pondering about all the seasons and events of life. In the New Testament, kairos refers frequently to the time of 
God's activity or a decisive time filled with spiritual significance. For example, when Paul says in 2 Corinthians, see, now is the acceptable time, see, now is the day of salvation, the word for time here is kairos. This is more than chronos time. It's God time. It's significant time. It's time filled with possibility and it's time that we're invited into to sense what God is doing. And I'll say a little bit more later in this message about what that means. And that, of course, could be with this evening because, hey, Kronos is out and Kairos is in. We've all joined Julie. The other word that Jarek uses to speak of time is aeon. Aeon refers to an unbroken age or eternity. Our minds yearn for understanding and ultimate answers because we have that innate sense of eternity, yet the mind of God is veiled in this sense. This is where we, where we reach the limits of human comprehension, hence the complaint of the teacher in Ecclesiastes. We who are subject to the constraints of time and the buffeting of life's circumstances can only observe that times of mourning and dancing, of speaking up or sitting in silence, come and go with mysterious fluidity, prompted by unexpected twists and turns in life, the deeper purpose of which is known only to God. We are not God. We are mortals. Now, you're doing well. You're with me so far? I have three basic points to make about time today, and these three points lead us from this humbling realization that only the deeper mind of God can truly understand what happens when and perhaps why to a generous life that takes the time that we've been given and uses it to serve God and especially others while accepting our lack of control over many things in this life. My first point, you'll be pleased to know, has already been made. It's this. We don't control time. Seasons of weeping and laughing, of gain and loss, of peace and conflict, will roll over us without politely seeking our permission. We are, of course, free will agents making many moral choices in life, and therefore the author of some of our own circumstances, but God ultimately governs the seasons and the times. And a myriad of factors beyond our control affect our lives. Wisdom accepts this. My second point is this. We have enough time. Now, many of us think we don't, but that's to pick an argument with God and to forfeit peace of mind. It also actually undermines our capacity to use the time we've been given to generously serve others. And I'll say more on this in a moment. My third point is this. Our time is not our own. And by that I mean this. Even the choice of what, even the choice of what to do with our time within the constraints of having little control over it, point number one, and only a finite quantity of it, point number two, is not a choice that belongs solely to us. 
our time actually belongs to God and to others. The Christian life is about giving away what we once thought of as ours. Just generosity is a Christian calling and a virtue, and it characterizes God's nature, as Newt spelled out so well last week, and it is to characterize our lives and our nature also. Now, there's a caveat to the statement that our time is not our own, because others do not have an absolute claim on it, and we are called by God sometimes to rest, to retreat from the needs of others. And there's a God-ordained weekly rhythm of work and Sabbath rest. But the thought that our precious time belongs to us, I want to suggest, has no biblical foundation and is actually incompatible with a life that follows Jesus. Jesus invites us to live for God and neighbour. Both have a claim on our time. Now, before before saying a little bit more on that, let's turn for a moment to point number two. We have enough time, and I'll share a personal story here. Two years ago, I wrote an oddly worded phrase on a post-it note, and I stuck it in my journal. That phrase was, the time is enough. Not a very grammatically, um, you know, beautiful phrase, but I knew what it meant. The time I have available to me is enough. Enough for what? What was I so concerned about needing enough time for? Well, months earlier, I had been invited to lecture at Kerry Baptist College in Christian spirituality, and I set about redesigning and rewriting the existing course. And it wasn't long before I was, Newt remembers these days, he came and visited me, I was up to my neck in books and articles and research and writing and course outlines and potential assessment criteria, et cetera, et cetera. It was a ton of work and I felt stressed as I raced to complete this course before I had to stand in front of a class full of second and third year theology students. And so that note to self, the time is enough, was my way of trying to remind myself that God was the Lord of time and to trust God with the time I had available, which was rapidly vanishing. I was doing an appalling job of trusting God with that. I had to return to that post-it note mantra repeatedly because I actually like to control my world and get everything done well. But there's one thing I couldn't control. We don't control time. God had given me the season to prepare and I felt like it was too short. Time was slipping through my fingers and as it did so, I would begin each lecture prep day panicking and doubting that I had enough time. Now the God who who presumably opened the door for me to teach was not unaware of the time I had to prepare to do so. So would I trust God There's a time to prepare lectures and a time to deliver them. I fretted daily about Kronos time. The irony here is that God was trying to whisper to me about Kairos time. Praying with Julie one day about the burden of it all, and she's very patient with my Kronos concerns, she had an image of fly fishing come to mind. It was the thought of me teaching those students in a relaxed way not needing to get through all the content, 
but being ready to toy with any idea that hooked their hearts and minds in the moment. Not even having to land it, so to speak, just enjoying learning together. Kairos time, you get it? Not chronos time. The constraints of time can frustrate us. Will I get the groceries? Will I then be able to pick the kids up from school? Will I get dinner cooked? Will I get it all done? Some of us, maybe many of us, would like more hours in our day. Perhaps you do. But I want to humbly suggest that we don't know what we're asking for when we wish for that. Do we really know better than God how many hours we need in our day? God has given us mortals 24 hours to eat and drink and find enjoyment in our toil, which Ecclesiastes highly commends, and then to go to bed, sleep, get up again tomorrow and do it all again. We are, in fact, to be content with that. Yet we want to bend the cosmic rules of space and time, don't we? To greedily grab for ourselves just a little more time without asking, perhaps, why we, why we might be living such anxious, busy lives to begin with. In a comment on Christian maturity and our approach to life and work, theologian Gordon T. Smith reminds us that it is important to recognize that time is gift, not a curse, and that to live in faith and gratitude is to graciously accept the limited hours and days of our lives. We learn to stop complaining about time as though God did not give us enough. If it's a gift, it's not something we complain about. And we come to accept that hurried, hectic, frenetic, or anxious work is a sign of a lack of vocational holiness. Ouch, that comment stings a bit, right? It bites, it's got a little bit of truth in it. How many of us live hurried, hectic, frenetic, and anxious lives? By the term vocational holiness, Smith is speaking in the broadest sense, like we are in the sermon series of how we live our lives in the service of God and others, generous, outward-facing lives, in partnership with God, using the gifts that God has given us to do good in the world. And one thing God has given us is time. But before we can use it to generously bless others, we first have to accept that God has given us enough of it. This leads to point number three. Our time is not our own. Part of the problem I think we have with time stems from who we think it belongs to. I think my time belongs to me. But when I do that, I'm going to grizzle to God because I can't get everything done. I'm even going to resent the person who interrupts my focused lecture preparation or sermon preparation day. Oh, the irony. Because I haven't yet learned to think of my time as not my own, it was never mine to begin with. In the screw tape letters that C.S. Lewis wrote famously many decades ago, um, and it's a book about 
uh, temptation and deception, a senior devil called Screwtape advises a junior devil called Wormwood on how to try and disrupt and wreck the faith of a Christian young man. Here is some of the uh, twisted advice from Screwtape to Wormwood. Screwtape writes, you must therefore zealously guard in his, the Christian young man's mind, the curious assumption, my time is my own. Let him have the feeling that he starts each day as the lawful possessor of 24 hours. Let him feel as a grievous tax that portion of his property, his time, which he has to make over to his employers and as a generous donation, that further portion which he allows to religious duties. But he must never be permitted to doubt that the total from which these deductions have been made was in some mysterious sense his own personal birthright. The clever point that C.S. Lewis is making is that a life crucified with Christ has no rights to jealously guard and protect, including what we think of as our right to our own time. Christ invites us to die to ourselves and to live under his lordship, which includes yielding everything we think of as ours, time included, so that the spirit of God can live in and through us every moment of every day. So if you didn't baptize your watch when you went down into the waters of baptism, maybe you should have. You're, baptizing your wallet's even harder, right? That's another sermon. Your time now belongs to God. To live generous lives for the sake of others, we need to release our grip and ownership on time. We need to actually allow others, and I'm not good at this, to inconvenience us and interrupt us with their needs. Because that's what Jesus did, right? Think of Jesus pausing to ask, who touched me? In the midst of a bustling crowd and then ministering to a sick woman. Right then he was in a Kairos moment. He was manifesting a Kairos moment. The kingdom was present. It's irrelevant whether it was 10 a.m. or 2 p.m. It doesn't matter where Jesus was going at the time. What mattered in that moment was that woman. Time stood still for her so that she could be healed. Will you allow God to govern your time in a similar way? Now, as I said before, this doesn't mean we have to respond to everybody's expectation and demands on our time. And so please hear me, the phrase, our time is not our own, does not give others unlimited access to it. Because the same God who will prompt you, if you'll let him, to pause and take time for others, will also prompt you to withdraw to practice Sabbath rest. We see this also in the script. In the scriptures, after a tiring season of ministry, Jesus said to the disciples, come away to a deserted place all by yourselves and rest a while. And so it's about learning to be led by the Spirit. It's about learning to walk in step with God within time. One last scripture. 
The wind blows where it chooses, and you hear the sound of it, but you do not know where it comes from or where it goes. So it is with everyone who is born of the Spirit. Like the writer of Ecclesiastes, we do not need to see the big picture. God knows what happens when and why. Only God dwells in aeon time. And we don't need to fret about the ticking of Kronos time, but we are invited to live with a sensitivity to Kairos time, to what God is doing in the moment and to joining him in that. Shall I pray for us in our use of time?